0: I need uh, a willing volunteer, a vo, a vic, vo, volunteer. <laughs> Dave, do just come and stand here. Thank you very much. I won't ask you to say anything. Can you hold that glass of water out as far? Right. I just want you to stand there for a while. <laughs> now, hang on. How are you doing? You right? Yeah. yeah, good. He's a, he's a strapping lad. A professional management consultant was um, giving some training and explaining some stress management to uh, some uh, in his audience, to an uh, an audience of executives. And he held up a glass of water, uh, much as my beautiful assistant is now, in fact, doing. And he asked the people in the audience, How much does this glass of water weigh? And um, there there was some debate as to whether or not you should include the weight of the glass uh, or just the water. Um, And the answers ranged from from, various options, 20 grams, 500 grams, uh, and so on. You doing all right, Dave? Yeah, how do you feel? Good, good. No, keep it very still, please. You still all right? Oh, great. Then the consultant said this, the absolute weight of the glass is utterly irrelevant. What matters is how long you hold it up. If you hold it up for a minute, it's not a problem. If you hold it up for an hour, you'll begin to have an ache in your arm. If you hold it up for a day, you'll probably have to call an ambulance. Should we go and have coffee? (laughs) Thank you very much, you may sit down. Give him a round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) In each case, of course, the weight of the glass, objectively speaking, is exactly the same. But the longer you hold it, the heavier it becomes and the harder it is to persevere. And then the consultant was saying, well, when it comes to stress and stress management, the key solution is rest and a change of activity. In other words, stop your work at the end of the working day. Don't take your work home with you and relax and then get refreshment and then pick it up again the next day. You'll be able to take on the burden. And uh, you'll be able to go on as long as you need to the next day, but then you rest. Whereas if you try to work through the night into the next day and then through the night again, you're gonna crash. I vividly remember one of my uh, oldest, oldest friends. We'd known each other since we were eight. He, um, after we left university, he got a plum job at Goldman Sachs. And um, I remember vividly, we went to a concert in the South Bank one evening. And, um, and then we went for a pizza after the concert, just on the South Bank there. And then after the concert, I was going home, he was going back to the office. And he had the kind of job where he was given something, a a report that we put on his desk and said, right, I need a presentation um, in, uh, you know, this was Monday, I need it by Thursday morning. Sometimes he wouldn't go to bed until Thursday night to get this thing done. And the way that Goldman Sachs operated is that they would assume that that's how it was going to go. People would be burnt out, out of three years, but after three years, if they'd leave, they'd make a pack of money. They wouldn't have had any time to spend it at all. They'd make a pack of money, then they'd go, and there would be 10 people wanting their spot. That was the economy of it. The longer you go on without a break, the harder it becomes. Now, the interesting thing is, I think it doesn't work perfectly, but I do think the analogy does work quite well for temptation. The longer you resist something, the harder it becomes to persevere in your resistance. C.S. Lewis absolutely summed it up perfectly in um, Mere Christianity, as ever. Uh, He said this, No man knows how bad he is until he tries very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. That is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a win by trying, trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ... Because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. the only complete realist, of course, the analogy with the sort of the glass of water breaks down a little bit because temptation pressure, if you like, ceases once we give in to it. it brings, I suppose relief temporarily perhaps, but it hardly brings refreshment since guilt will come, especially if we have a tender conscience, unless we have seared it. But it does illustrate the effort, the energy, the hardship of continual resistance to temptation. And the pressure of temptation is something we should always bear in mind when we judge other people for their spiritual failures. Especially if we know they've resisted for a long time. We are far too quick to dismiss people because of a fatal flaw, forgetting how hard it must have been before that point. Forgetting that every single one of us has a fatal flaw. We can be such Pharisees with other people's sins. We are so judgmental about other people's failings. And so full of grace for our own. How different church life would be if it was the other way around full of grace for other people's failings and perhaps a little more judgmental, if I can put it like that, of our own. I say all this because I want to put David's greatest tragedy into perspective we can all relate to. You might not have committed adultery or murder. That's irrelevant. The issue is not what sins, plural, we or you have committed or haven't committed, What matters is what you do with your sin, singular. That is why Psalms 32 and 51, I'm going to think about both of them today, are so crucial. And I hope that if they are not already, they will become an integral part of your spiritual staple diet. They were for a king. I suppose the biggest surprise when we think about it is that they were both written from first-hand experience by God's Old Testament Messiah himself. The Christ David, if I can put it like that. King David, the Messiah David, the Christ David, the anointed David, had to confess his sins. What on earth was God doing anointing him of all people? The longer you resist temptation, the harder it becomes. Well, let us think about David's tragedy as we go back to Samuel again. So keep a finger in Psalms, come back to Samuel, and chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel now. We've zoomed ahead somewhat. But let's not forget, as we we, we go back, that David was a hero. He he was a genuine hero, a man to look up to, a man to say, he's our man, our champion. He's done remarkable things, and far more significant than any of the things he's done he was a man of faith. He trusted God again and again in the most terrifying circumstances. In 15 years on the run, he persevered in trusting God. Uh, consider what he's done. I mean, you know, he delivered Israel from Goliath and then later the Philistines altogether. Uh, he persevered for years as a hunted man, he trusted God trusted that God had anointed him, and so that was enough. God will protect him. And then he united the nation properly, protected its borders thoroughly for the first time since perhaps Joshua's day. He instituted Jerusalem as the new capital, the result being that ever since, even to this day, it is called the city of David. And then in 2 Samuel 9, there's a beautiful story of his mercy and kindness. Chapter 9, just at the beginning of that, he says, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul for whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And that results in the remarkable, beautiful care for the crippled son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. Don't say that quickly. Someone who's deliberately been keeping a low profile. After all, new kings the world over tend not to treat threats to their power lightly, do they? Uh, it's been standard procedure in culture after culture to execute rivals, however remote their claims might be, as soon as you ascend the throne. And in some places, you know, like in the Ottoman Empire in Istanbul, new sultans would execute even their own brothers, to secure their power. And, and the way that the Ottoman Empire worked, it was extraordinary. Basically, the Sultan would send his sons to various governorships around the empire. And you could maybe detect who his favorites were by the fact that they were given governorships closer to Istanbul. So that when news of the, Emperor, that the Sultan came that, had, that he had died, basically it was a race to get to Istanbul. And the first one won. And then killed His brothers. And that's how it worked for centuries. No wonder Mephibosheth was keeping a low profile. He was an accident of birth. He was in the wrong family. But but David wasn't like that. Mephibosheth and his family were allowed to sit at the king's table. What an honour. What a gift of grace. And then in chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, David wants to do the same for, for an old enemy, the Ammonites, so there's a new king there. He wants to express his condolences to, to King Hanun at the death of his father. But when his diplomatic overtures are completely misinterpreted, uh, treated with appalling disrespect, uh, it sadly led to a small war. I- Israel, of course, beat them under David, but that must have left a bit of taste, don't you think? I tried to be nice. Perhaps this begins to explain David's slippery slope a little after, if you think about it, after years of fear, of conflict, of hardship, perhaps he'd just grown tired of it all. And then to top it all, when he tried to be kind... He tried to be different from everybody around him. To, to, to be kind to one of Israel's ancient rivals, it just gets flipped back in his face. Do you find that sometimes? You know, you, you desperately try to do the right thing, but it just gets flicked back. And you just simply you'd say, I just don't know why I bother sometimes. Do you ever feel like that? Sometimes there's just no pleasing people. I tried. And I wonder if that's what lies behind. I'm speculating, but I wonder, at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, I wonder if something of this frustrated goodness is what lies behind verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David... What? What? sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Normally the king goes off with the king's men. They destroyed the Ammonites, they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. David was a great man. But after such a positive trajectory, all the way through 1 Samuel and so far in 2 Samuel, then suddenly things nosedive with terrifying speed. And in the grand irony of the whole story, if you take the sort of whole narrative arc of the story, the grand irony is that by remaining in Jerusalem in 11, chapter 11, verse 1, this will lead inexorably to the humiliation of having to flee from Jerusalem in chapter 15 during Absalom's revolt. If only he'd done what kings do. So what happens? Well, perhaps his defences are down. Perhaps uh, he's just tired of all... Uh, perhaps on a hot evening, he puts his bed on the roof. And uh, one night, he wanders around, and he suddenly sees the most stunning naked woman bathing. It's the equivalent of flicking on the box in the middle of the night and a bout of insomnia and getting locked into a dodgy movie on Channel 5 except the difference is that this is not a virtual fantasy. It's a real fantasy. And he's the king. He can act on his lust. It's not all in his head. He must have her. He will have her. In the story, we, we have nothing... From the woman's perspective, we don't know anything about how she felt about all this. It's told from the king's perspective. And as so often in the Bible, the storytelling is very, very spare. We must understand this. The writers hardly ever give us a moral judgment of what's happened. As we'll see in a few minutes, you know, there are some terrible things that happen within this family. But don't expect the writers to say, this was bad. It's not because they don't think it is bad. It's because two things are going on. One, they expect you to know the covenant... And that is the benchmark for all that happens in the Old Testament. So you measure what goes on. You measure the events according to the covenant. And then secondly, the narrative will give you a pretty good clue because you'll see what happens as a result. So I don't know if this woman was even vaguely attracted or perhaps flattered by the royal attention. We'll never know. But especially if she wasn't attracted or flattered, whatever is going on here, this is a grotesque abuse of power. This is what used to be called droit de seigneur, the right of the lord of the manor to bed any girl in his domain that he wished, even on her wedding night. And David exercised his right. Well, what he considered his right... Certainly wasn't what the covenant assured as his right. And then this begins a spiraling descent. Woman gets pregnant, king initiates cover up proceedings. That's in verses six to nine. A woman's husband Uriah won't play ball, stays with soldiers because there's a war on. Isn't that what kings are supposed to be doing? Don't you know there's a war on, Your Majesty? Who's with the king's men? Oh, oh, it's Joab. It's okay. That's where the king should be sleeping, not in other men's beds, with other men's wives. Well, that doesn't work, so king has Uriah pushed into the front line, done away with. No one would ever know. These things happen in war all the time. How easy. Just think of the millions killed in the trenches in the First World War. How easy it would be to just get rid of one or two people you didn't particularly appreciate. Oh, you go over the top first. There's a good chap. Then after appropriate time, appropriate time of mourning, David has woman brought round, woman made wife. I must have her, I will have her, I do have her. If you're offended by the fact that I keep calling her the woman, you've understood. Bathsheba doesn't get a look in but then comes the devastating response verse 27 of chapter 11 but the thing David had done displeased Yahweh well that's a pretty good editorial hint you see, much of what David did does not actually make sense. For starters, he, does he actually need to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy? I mean, sure, adultery was a serious offense in the covenant, but he's the king. Who's going to sue him? Who's going to force him to have a paternity test? And why bother them with the whole Uriah sherad, even to the point of getting him killed? Uriah's not going to do anything. After all, he's a foreigner, isn't he? He's Uriah the Hittite. He's an alien and stranger in the land who lives according to the covenant, presumably, which is more than the king does. It's dark and it's brutal. Reminds me of one of the most uh, brilliant TV series ever made. Uh, which is also dark and brutal. I'm referring to House of Cards, both the British and American versions. The British with Ian Richardson as Francis Urquhart in 1990, and now the American version with Kevin Spacey as Frank Underwood. Kevin Spacey says these words in the very beginning of the first season. A great man once said that everything is about sex... Except sex, sex is about power. The great man he's quoting is, did you know this? It's Oscar Wilde. Supremely cynical. Because sex, at its best, in its right place, has very little to do with power. But when it's twisted and abused, that's exactly what it becomes. And I do think it helps us to understand David a little bit because it's ultimately about his power. He does it because he can. He's the king. And actually to stay in power, he needs to preserve his reputation. After all, he's the leader of God's covenant people. He must be seen, therefore, to keep the covenant emphasis on being seen to rather than whether or not he actually does. So he has to be whiter than white, squeaky clean. Well, we live in a moral universe... And we can't just make up the rules to suit us, whether we're kings or peasants, billionaires or mired in debt. Sin always has consequences in God's word. world, always. Not always in ways we might predict, and not necessarily immediately, but it will happen in the end. You see, it matters if Yahweh is displeased. And the consequences roll out with speed in the subsequent uh, chapters. Chapter 12, Nathan confronts David. Nathan is one of my heroes. I I just cannot imagine how scared he must have been to walk into the king's presence and says, you are that man. Talk about speaking truth to power. What is impressive is that David fesses up immediately. We'll think about that. We're going to come back to that. But please understand, it does not prevent the devastation that results. Yes, he confesses. Yes, he might be forgiven. But there are still appalling consequences. You can't change that. So in chapter 12, uh, towards the end, the, the baby that results from this pregnancy dies. Remarkably, David and Bathsheba have another son. Do you know his name? Solomon. Sound a little more surprised. He had plenty of other wives. What about the rest of David's family? Well, they're chips off the old block. David's son Amnon lusts after his half-sister. And so in chapter 13, he rapes her. The father committed adultery. The son commits incestual rape. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, is incensed, and you would be, wouldn't you? Who wouldn't? And it cannot have helped Absalom that David seems to do nothing about it. Within his own home, his own household. And he takes things, therefore, into his own hands, this is Absalom, and he murders his half brother Amnon. Well, you would, wouldn't you? The father committed murder, the son commits fratricide. (laughs) Chips off the old block. And then Absalom re- leads a rebellion against his father, the king, and David has to flee from the city of David. And the crisis is only quelled when Absalom is killed, bizarrely enough when his beautifully coiffured hair gets caught in an oak tree and he's left hanging mid-air. It's all rather weird. <laughs> Don't get your hair quaffed. I think that's the key. <laughs> or go near oak trees, No, that's not how the passage is applied, of course. But you see, in terms of how 2 Samuel is written, all of this flows out of David staying at home when kings go to war. He commits adultery and murder. His sons commit incestual rape and fratricide. Like father, like son. We have seen David at his best, and now we see David at his worst. Both an abuse of power and a dereliction of power. Not so much as a king, as a dad. But in spite of all of that, the highs and the lows, the mark of David, the mark of the man, and what in my mind makes him such a great hero, is what he does when Nathan says, you are that man. That is the mark of the man. Chapter 12, verse 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. Not many who would do that immediately. The first instinct, isn't it, is to cover up. To compound the crime with further lies. I've done it. You've done it. People in power always do it. I did not have sex with that woman. Uh, We did have sexual relations. I have sinned against the Lord. What is it about David that makes him respond so quickly? Well, I think the clue comes from his conscience. Turn to Psalm 32, first of all. We're not told anything about the dating of this psalm. We are about 51, but not 32. So I've got to indulge in a little bit of guesswork here. But I don't think it's too fanciful to imagine that perhaps this could have been from the same, amount of the same um, time. And after all, we are talking, you know, even though it's just a few paragraphs in Samuel, we're talking several months, aren't we? Because we're talking about someone, you know beginning to get pregnant and, and, and you know, warfare and, and, and so on. So this is an extended period. You can imagine David at night thinking, praying. Look at verse 3, Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. It's visceral language. Agonizing, isn't it? This is the power of guilt on a tender conscience. On someone who knew better, and yet who still failed. And when he failed, he tried to keep quiet. He tried to protect his reputation And I I just wonder whether Psalm thirty-two fits with the Bashibba story. You know, it's beginning to get hot in the Middle East. He's lying on uh, the, the sleeping on the roof, perhaps. He looks down, sees her. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer, but not just by the weather, but also by his conscience, his guilt. This is the key question. Not what to do if you are guilty, but what you do when you are guilty. That's the mark of the man, the mark of the woman. What do you do when you are guilty? There's a fun story of the Prussian king, Frederick the Great, uh, who was once touring a, a prison in Berlin And naturally, you know, the prisoners fall to their knees uh, before the king to proclaim their innocence. Except for one man uh, in the prison who remained silent. And Frederick called him, why you, you, why are you here? Armed robbery, your majesty. And are you guilty? Yes, indeed, majesty. I deserve my punishment. Frederick summoned the jailer and ordered him, release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have him kept in prison where he will corrupt all the fine, innocent people who occupy it. (laughs) It's a wonderful response. The question is, what will happen when we confess our sin to a holy God? Will he treat us as lightly? After all, we know that there are things that displease him. Verse 5 of Psalm 32 Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. How will God respond? Well, before we answer that question, let's turn now to Psalm 51. We're told in the heading that it was written after Nathan had confronted him. So my guess is that uh, one of the prayers that Nathan uh, prayed in desperate repentance as he prayed and pleaded for the life of this child with Bathsheba was this psalm. and I've called this David's Gospel. Uh, Hopefully, the the bookstall is gonna be arriving within hours, Um, and one of the books I've asked Alex to get hold of is Alec Mateer's lovely book, The Treasures of the King, and it too is um, based on the Psalms in David's life. What's really frustrating is that he only covers two of the Psalms I've looked at this week. Otherwise, I would have just read out the book. It would be much easier. Um, but he, uh, Alec Matea focuses on um, the first two verses uh, of Psalm 51 brilliantly. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfading love, according to your great compassion, blosh out, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Well, those short lines are... Weighted with such remarkable, profound truth that they merit just pausing over them. And Alec Mathieu does a grand job. He notices how David uses three different words for his own predicament transgression, iniquity, and sin. Transgression is a deliberate and willful rebellion against a superior. In other words, the boss said, do this or don't do that, and transgression is to say, stuff it, I'll do it anyway. Iniquity is is a sort of deviancy, what Alec Matea calls the inner warp of the human heart. And sin, in this context, the word he uses in the Hebrew, is a specific wrongdoing. In his case, adultery and being an accessory to murder. A deliberate rejection of the authority of the superior, an inner deviancy, and the specific wrongdoing. All of it is confronting David. And naturally, he longs for something to be done about it, but he knows he can't do it himself. So there are three words for what he longs for, for it to be blotted out, washed away, and cleansed. And we we skate over those words and, and see, you know, just think of them as, well, they're basically saying the same thing. Do you find that when you're reading the Psalms? It's basically saying the same thing, isn't it? So, yeah, we're just, yeah, okay, that's those six verses. Yeah, basically saying the same thing. No. Blot out. It's the word for wiping away, like, like wiping away tears. But also what you do when you're doing the washing up, you're wiping the plates clean. Sin leaves a mark, a scar. Always. A mark a scar that God can see and that God can wipe away I mean if we have surgery it leaves a scar that basically you live with and you know sometimes people are quite proud of their sort of battle scars it's nothing to be proud of with our sin scars to be blotted out. And then he uses wash away. And this develops a theme, but but this is the language used of the launderer who uses a very strong soap that really gets into the material, the cloth, to get, you know, all the tiny bits of dirt that are right in the heart of the fibers, you know, right in there. You know, reaches um, the parts that other detergents can't reach or worse to that effect. It's about thoroughness and then cleanse well cleanse the hebrew word there apparently is used 47 times just in the book of leviticus for the effect that sacrifices have to remove the barrier between me and him between us and god that thing whatever it is that stands in the way between us and our lord can be cleansed and removed through the sacrifices in the temple and then three words for david's appeal to god's character because it's not enough to know what you need it's it's, it's all about whether the person you appeal to has the inclination to come through his mercy, his unfailing love, his compassion. Mercy, it, it, it is about the undeservedness of it. That gets to the heart of God's grace. It is undeserved. Unfailing love. This is a chesed, the covenant faithfulness, love of God. God's made promises in the covenant because of who God is. That is the grounds for any confidence we might have in our failures. Because God promised his love is faithful to his promises. This is his chesed. And then his compassion. This is the emotional, heartfelt affection and love for people, even in their failure. These nine words, if you like, form the sort of steel girders that are the backbone to the whole psalm. They depict beautifully the steps of repentance and faith. A recognition of our honesty and confession, then a recognition of our helplessness, and then appealing to God's nature and promises. And they wonderfully, spectacularly, Anticipate what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ supremely at the cross. And we'll think more about that tomorrow. But despite their antiquity, these ancient words in Psalm 51 have profound resonance today. And, and the first is, is what you might call coming clean in confession, verses 3 to 6. And we can see that uh, here, you know, David does the first two things. He is honest about his sin. He knows he's helpless, verse 3 and 4. But there are two controversies particularly uh, um, uh, associated with verses 4 and 5. And I just want to pick pick up on those. Because the first is this idea from verse 4, Surely I was sinful at birth. No, sorry, that's not what I mean. Um, Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, hang about. What about what David did to Bathsheba? What about what David did to Uriah? What about what David did to his family? What about what David did... To his people with his hypocrisy and offence. What about the impact this had on his authority and kingdom? It destabilized Israel for the rest of his rule. You see, sin is never private. It always has public consequences. And of course, the more public the figure, the more widespread the consequences The list could go on. It always does when public figures fail. But David's not denying his sins against all these people in verse 4. He's simply recognizing that at its heart, all sins are a reflection of our sin. Sins, plural, the individual acts of defiance and rebellion and iniquity, are a manifestation of our sin, our heart, that inner warp. Because, you see, David had effectively said, God, I don't trust you to know best for this situation. I'm going to do, take things into my own hands. I'm the boss. It'll be fine, don't worry. It won't have too many consequences. I'll just sleep uh, around with this beautiful girl, and it'll be fine. It's a reflection of the problem that dates back to Eden. God said sin had fatal consequences. The snake said, no, it doesn't. Who are you going to trust? David trusted the snake, and so he offended against God. The second controversy is, is that he describes in verse 5 that he had this tendency from the start. And, and I agree that, that there are aspects of this that are hard to understand, the whole idea of original sin. But as anyone who is a parent knows, that's not hard to believe, Children are sinners. You don't have to teach a child to be bad. We're like those wooden balls used in lawn bowls, you know? They're sort of shaved on one side, so they're not completely spherical. And they're shaped like that so that they deliberately do not go in a straight line. And the art of the bowl's bowler bowler, is that basically they bowl the bowl and they exploit the shape to make it curve round to where they want to go. But for the uninitiated, for the inexperienced, you throw this thing and it goes all over the shop. Well, that's what we're like. We don't go in a straight line. We always veer off. So again, the issue is not what we do if we sin, but what we do when we sin. And the rest of the psalm speaks, uh, verses 7 to 12 speaks of the confidence we have in confession. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Do you see these words that he longed for? Now he has confidence because he trusts in the promises that God has made. But I want to pick out two things again rather than go into all the details. He says in verse 11 a very disturbing line. He says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Is that possible for us? Well, it is true. There are clear warnings in Scripture against complacency in our faith. But I think this is where the special historical context of this psalm is crucial. You see, David was anointed with God's Spirit for a specific purpose, to be the king. He was a Messiah. He was anointed by the Spirit and the oil that Samuel poured on his head. Uh, Other people in the Old Testament were anointed with the Spirit as well, judges, priests, prophets, as well as kings, uh, to give them the power for specific jobs, and occasionally even craftsmen. You remember Bezalel and Aholiab creating the tabernacle in in Exodus 35? They are anointed, they have the Spirit come down on them to make them good craftsmen. What is clear, though, is that in the Old Covenant, the Spirit does not come on every believer, nor does he necessarily come permanently. And David knew that well. Why? Because of his predecessor. What happened to Saul? He disobeyed God. He displeased the Lord. And the Spirit departed. No wonder David prays for the Spirit to stay. I do not think this is a prayer a Christian need pray. God promises through the prophets like Joel and others and Peter picks up on in Acts 2 that the Spirit comes on all who are in Christ for eternity. He is the down payment, as Paul calls him, the first fruits of the harvest, the deposit. And when the Spirit comes, he comes not for a short break, but for a life and an eternity. He comes to stay. That gives us an extraordinary confidence even greater than David's. But no wonder David prays in verse 10 for a pure heart and a steadfast spirit. He knows he can't do it on his own. So here's the gospel according to David. God is a God of chesed love mercy and compassion so all is not lost the consequences would remain but david's heart and life would be resorted uh, would be uh, would serve the lord who has saved him there is confidence in his confession and he knows who he's talking to which is why back in psalm 32 he says in verse 5, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. But just as sin is not a private thing, as we close, nor is forgiveness. Sin is not private, but nor is forgiveness. It is a gospel to proclaim. Psalm 32 ends that way, calling on the faithful to pray why God may be found to trust in the hiding place. But David's sermon ends, uh, David's gospel ends at the end of Psalm 51 with a public announcement. I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And he's qualified to do that. There's a lovely double meaning in verse 15 because David prays for open lips that he can declare your praise. And so often in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, praising God works two ways. Obviously, It means singing and praising God. God loves to hear our praises, not because he's conceited, but because it's right and good. That's why we declare his praises down here. But there's a second meaning. Declaring our praises is actually also about evangelism. I mean, if you think about it, it's telling other people how amazing this forgiveness thing is. It's not keeping it to yourself. I mean, imagine meeting one of your heroes. What would you say to them if you could meet them? I don't know whether it's uh, their music or their batting skills or their integrity in public life or their books or whatever it is. Imagine what you could say to them if, they, if you met them face to face. You know, if you weren't too tongue-tied. <laughs> oh, I, just, I just love your whatever. Great, thank you so much for producing that or offering that or inspiring us. That's praise. But don't you also want to say to your friends, Hey, hey come and look at this guy. He's amazing. Well, you've got to watch this clip on YouTube. It just blew me away. You'll love this. That's evangelism. And as we tell others, we form a community of people who share the same, forgive, the same experience of sins forgiven. Again, C.S. Lewis put it perfectly. Friendship is born at that moment when one man says to another, what? You two? I thought that no one but myself would. I'll teach transgressors. Let me close with the holding up the glass as we resist temptation. What do we need to keep going? We need rest. Obviously not from giving in. Perhaps those sometimes from a bit of distraction therapy, that can be quite helpful. Find something different to watch on telly or to read. Or making sure you don't go to the same pub or hang out with the same people find other otherwise the temptation just to go to them is strong because you've got nothing better to do we'll find something better to do but of course we need help we can't do it on our own we need others and that must be at least our god by his spirit create in me a clean heart Friends as well, though, other people, confidants, brothers and sisters, people who won't give up on us when we failed, when we're tired, when we have seriously screwed up. Is All Souls a church full of people who can cope with other people screwing it up? Is that what we're like as a church? I'm just asking. I've screwed up. I've really messed up big time from time to time. Can I trust you with that? or is that the end of a beautiful friendship? Let me close with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote this amazing little book, Life Together. He's discussing the words in James 5, confess your sins to one another. He said this, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all the fellowship in service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship with one another as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered amongst the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. But the fact remains that we are sinners. I suggest that we make it a practice to confess our sins to God and to one another, not to everybody. But is there someone, a little group, a triplet of complete trust to whom you're accountable and by whom you're loved? If some of those people are here, fantastic. Why not you know, forget some of the activities? Don't, you, know, you don't have to do everything. You don't even have to go to all the seminars. Why not just go and sit under a tree with your triplet? And acknowledge the fact that, hey, we're all in this together. I can't do this on my own. You can't do this on your own. So why on earth are we trying? If they're not here, we'll pray that when you're back at home, there'll just be one or two other people, and often not your spouse. Just one or two people that you can meet with regularly to pray, to love, to laugh, to trust, to help. I've gone on a little bit longer. But I want to end with a lovely, gentle setting of Psalm 32. And use this time just to reflect. We are sinners. So what matters is not if you sin, but what you do when you sin. Blessed is he who is forgiven.